Merry Christmas to everyone out there. This is Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion, news, views, and counter-apologetics for those who won't just take things on faith. It's Christmas time. Christmas time. Christmas time. Happy holidays. I'm Jeremy Van. With me in the studio is Mr. David Fletcher. Hello. And our wonderful Christmas elf, Luke Galen. (laughs) I prefer the term dwarf, but a little person. Do you guys have any Christmas plans coming up? Well, nothing special. We've got the tree up. We've got... um, well, it's it's empty underneath because we're poor, but uh, theoretically, we we would have uh, Christmas gifts to exchange. Um, you know, drinking eggnog and uh, stuffing stockings with coal, all that sort of thing. I'm more of a traditional guy. I want to bring it back to the way it used to be, Jeremy. Back to Saturnalia. <laughs> you original, Saturnalia. So you're having bizarre fertility rights. Fertility rights. That's what you're doing wreaths. for the season. I have the wreaths, just like you have the yeah. wreaths, but the wreaths uh, I have are to praise Saturn and. But, the but there's no together. impregnating of young, fertile women going on. You know, we'll see how things turn out. <laughs> <laughs> a bottle of eggnog and who knows what can happen. I, I personally don't have a problem with Christmas and uh, enjoy celebrating it. I'm going back to Illinois to uh, spend some time with my family over the holiday. But, uh, it'll be nice to have some time off. But what I'm really excited to talk about is a little Christmas gift that Reasonable Doubts has received. A couple of them, in fact. Uh, One is just, first of all, our great listeners and the ongoing support and great reviews and uh, encouraging emails that we've been receiving from all of you guys. We've done, what, five episodes so far? Five episodes. Kind of to test the waters to Mm -hmm. see uh, if we could pulled off and if people would enjoy it and thanks to some of our feedback I think we've decided that uh, that this is something worth putting our time and energy into so thank you for that encouragement and um, we'll tell you more about our background and where we're coming from what's motivating our show uh, on the first episode of the new year in January which will feature an interview with DJ Grothy. My personal hero. DJ Grothy is awesome. He uh, joined us in the studio uh, a couple days ago for an interview. It was by far the most incredible interview we've ever done. He was very candid and personal uh, about some of his, his own background and history and ideas. And listeners to Point of Inquiry hear his voice every week and barely know anything about the guy. And we are very proud that we're going to be able to bring that to you. However, I wanted to hear from more of our listeners. And so I'm putting out there uh, an offer to our listeners for the first show of the new year in January. We want to discuss personal stories about the path to doubt, a chance to share why critical thinking and why skepticism is a valuable thing, what a difference it can make in people's life. We're going to call the show The Gospel of Doubt, The Good News of Doubting and Skepticism. And I want to invite our listeners to email us your stories about how critical thinking, doubt, and skepticism has made a difference in your life, why you think it's important, Uh, And I would even like to invite some of our uh, perhaps more technical savvy listeners to send us in audio files. Um, We want to put your voice on the air, too, so we can hear from you personally. Doubtcast at gmail.com is our podcast email address. Send us your emails. Send us uh, an audio file uh, if you have the time. And hopefully... Your contribution will be featured in that episode. Also, we are being paid a Christmas visit today by uh, probably one of the biggest speakers that we'll ever be able to get on the show. 
Uh, Paul Kurtz is going to be on the show today. The atheist Santa. The <laughs> or non-theist, I think, is the term the, he likes to use. The non-theist Santa. There's really nothing similar between the two. We are very excited to be able to bring to you an interview with him today. Before we get around to that, I'm happy to share some listener emails with you guys today. We haven't really heard from our fans yet on the actual podcast, so I just wanted to share some stuff. Wait, there's people that listen to this other than us? Yeah, uh, Actually, uh, from what I've heard, even we don't listen to the podcast. So. <laughs> I don't know what a podcast Smart ass. is. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> well, what do they say, Jeremy? <laughs> well, they're, they're saying all sorts of wonderful things. Uh -oh. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna focus on all the praise that we've been getting, though. We've been getting buttloads of it. Uh, buttloads of praise. <laughs> buttloads of praise. <laughs> oh, that's definitely gonna be edited um. out. That's one for the gag reel. Um, generally, the feedback we've been getting has been great. One listener writes, I thought I should take a moment to congratulate you on your excellent podcast. I can be a bit picky when it comes to free thought related shows, and I generally only listen to Freedom from Religion Foundation's podcast. However, I have to say that I've enjoyed every episode of Reasonable Doubts so far, and I look forward to listening to many more to come. Oh, that's nice. It's really great when Luke writes e emails to <laughs> yeah, us. I, I want to read my own. That <laughs> Uh, we've had Christians email us to tell us that they uh, they really enjoy hearing another point of view, even if they disagree. They enjoy it, and that's wonderful to hear. Um, I did want to share with you guys a negative review that we got on iTunes the other day. Awesome. One of the few examples, I'm proud to say, of somebody who had some serious complaints with the show. Hmm. Here it is for you guys. The review is titled, As a Christian, Not Challenging at All. In preparing to listen to this podcast, I sat down with a pad of paper ready to write down any arguments I didn't have an easy answer for. After listening to three straight shows, my pad of paper sits blank. On one hand, it's disappointing because I was hoping for something that would challenge me. On the other, I'm encouraged to see that these are the best arguments that they can make. Oh, he pretty much nailed it right there. That's shattered. Why, why do we even try it? Let's just pack it up. I'd like to hear some specific criticism, like what arguments um, failed to convince you. If our arguments are weak, the offer is always out there to uh, shoot back to us. We'd love to have the debate. Yeah, that's the interesting thing because it's, it's easy to say, well, it's simple to refer, refute that kind of argument. Well, we'll do it then. I mean, if it's so easy, hit us mm -hmm. with it. If, I'm sure also the person could get a publication if they've solved the problem of evil. I'm, there's a lot of people that would want to hear about that in the <laughs> so philosophical true. community. So. We haven't focused uh, just specifically on theological arguments. We've tried to bring in current events and cultural topics. We were trying to, with this podcast, be very careful about not being the atheist who just goes in and, and tries to uh, slash and burn all aspects of religious thought. And a lot of our criticisms are ones that could be shared by other religious people. In fact, we've gotten people who've, who've said just that. You know, I agree with your criticisms of Christianity on some particular point. I think from the number of religious listeners that we've had that have commented positively about the show, I think we've kind of had our, our testing period as far as being able to prove to people that we can be intellectually honest and, uh, and fair-minded towards people whom we disagree with. But you know what? The more I was thinking about this and actually looking over our past episode roles, we haven't really been putting forward a forceful critique of too many issues that really deserve to be challenged out there. So, uh, so uh, I'm thinking maybe we should start kicking a little more ass on the podcast. All That's, right, then. This guy wants to fill up his pad of paper. We're going to start giving you more than you need. The gauntlet has been thrown down. With that being said... Let's go into our Skeptics Sunday School. Oh, yeah. 
Skeptic Sunday School is a segment we've had on the show before. It's basically our chance to spread a little biblical literacy around, talk about the Bible, talk about different religious texts, but the stuff you're not necessarily going to hear in church, the stuff that they haven't taught you to study, and for good reason. This week, we have a Christmas-themed Skeptic yay, Sunday yay, School. Christmas! And uh, it starts with a little word from our friends at Barna.org. That's right. The good people with the Barna Group have just released the results of a survey they conducted with 1,005 adults across the country asking them um, about various stories of the Bible and if they believe them to be literally true. An astonishing three out of four adults, so that's 75% of people polled, said that they believe Jesus Christ was born to a virgin as described in the gospel narratives. In Luke. In Luke? Not in Matt. Oh, not in Matt. Uh, Matt skipped over that that ever-important point. Um, According to Barna.org, Mary's virgin birth was accepted as literally true by two-thirds of upscale adults, that's 66%, those of you who are bad at math, and by a bare majority of the unchurched, 53%, which is still a surprisingly high high. number. Even a, a strikingly large share of those who describe themselves as mostly liberal on political social issues, 60%, adopted the biblical view of Christ's birth. The exception to this 75% of people who believed that the story of the virgin birth was true was atheists and agnostics, among whom just 15% said this really happened. So you don't believe that there's a God in the universe, <laughs> but you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. That, I, I, And I have no idea how to account for that unless it's just the agnostics. I mean, if it's all the agnostics who are saying, yeah. well, it, it could have happened. But the question is, do you believe this to be literally true? Now, I don't have the, the actual question, but that's, that's what uh, Barna is telling us the question was. Luke is our research expert. Um, this had a sample of... A thousand and five. Uh, a thousand and five adults. Now, I I don't know much about statistics, but I would have to believe that 15% of atheists being polled, unless it's a very small sample of that thousand and five, I can't believe that that would all be accounted for just for statistical phenomena, right? Margin of error? Yeah, it is true that margin of error gets more, fluctuates more when you get smaller and smaller proportions of the pie. So in other words, that 15 can more easily turn into 5 or 20 than could a higher percentage number. But, you know, I have no, I guess there's no reason to question overall the results. Uh, you know, you could also chalk it up for a familiar, familiarity thing. Some people might say, well, you know, I'm not particularly religious, but that's something that they recognize, Jesus, born of a virgin. So, yeah, it could be true, like Dave said. I've, you know, maybe somebody's trying to keep an ultra-open mind and saying, I guess it could be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the general patterns observed by this study fall into the well-duh category of surveying. Uh, first off, born-again Christians were far more likely than non-born-again adults to accept each of the six narratives as fully accurate. Protestants more likely than Catholics. Uh, Catholics especially struggled to put their faith in the Old Testament stories. Um, people who live in the South were more likely than residents of all other regions, downscale individuals, um, which is not a phrase I'm terribly familiar with, but I'm, I guess it's the opposite of upscale. Walmart versus Target. They give, uh, they give a definition of upscale. Do they have one of downscale? I don't think so, but I would imagine it's be the, the opposite. Op- uh, people, upscale people are those who have uh, completed a four-year college degree and have an annual household income of... 75000 or okay, more. 75000 So... I'm not upscale? I, I am not upscale. Um, well, is it both? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm offended by that. Yeah. Banjo, I walk out of here. So downscale individuals were substantially more likely than upscale people to characterize each of the six stories as factually reliable and 
those who portrayed themselves as mostly conservative on political matters were substantially more likely than those who call themselves mostly liberal to consider each of the six stories to be literally true. So... Where do you start with the Virgin Birth? Yeah, God, that's where I'm at now. So it's a good sign when Jeremy cracks his knuckles before launching. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to dive into something. Stand back. Um, get your pads of paper out because we have some arguments for you. Let's just go direct to the story itself. The story is only recorded in two Gospels. Matthew in chapters 2, verses 1 through 22, and in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 40. And when you read them, read them parallel next to each other yeah. instead of one after the other. That's right. Flip back and forth because it's a very illuminating thing to do. The story that most people accept, the sort of nativity story that you'll see uh, represented in all this Christmas imagery. It's the one that Linus tells in uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas. That same one. Mm -hmm. This is a hybrid of two stories that are full of discrepancies. So, for example, in the Matthew account, uh, Joseph and Mary are living in Bethlehem. Uh, there's no mention at all of a census that needs to bring them to Bethlehem. There's no mention of the inn with no room or of Jesus being born and laid in a manger. None of that. And they're in Bethlehem from the start. And actually, before we, before we move on, this census story that, that appears in Luke, how does anyone think that it makes sense to go back to the origin of uh, of your tribe for a census. A census is is done so you can tax people, and you need to know where they are, not where generations back they came from. There's no record of a census ever being done like that. It, you know, Luke tries to date three separate things. He, if you notice, he bends over backwards to say when Quirinius was governor of Syria, but they don't match up with each other. There was a census, but it was mm -hmm. not during that time. Uh, if Jesus was born during Herod the Great's reign, it was. Uh, we know that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., so uh, a lot of those dates don't, don't line up with each other. Apologists have been trying for centuries to find all sorts of convoluted ways to try to make them fit. Now, in Luke, of course, in the Luke account, Joseph and Mary are living in Nazareth, so they have to go to Bethlehem to do the census. So in Matthew, they are visited by the Magi, the wise men, uh, at their home sometime after Jesus' birth. In Luke, there's no wise men at all. You won't find them in that gospel. Uh, instead, you'll find the shepherds visiting the night that Jesus, uh, the night of Jesus' birth. Uh, no mention of wise men, no mention of the star. In Matthew 2, they end up leaving Bethlehem for Egypt to avoid the slaughter of the children that's being ordered by King Herod. None of this is mentioned in Luke. When they get back from Egypt, they settle or make their home in Nazareth. It's only then that they end up moving, moving to Nazareth. And the reason why they do it, they are returning. It doesn't say specifically, but it alleges that they're returning back to their home in Bethlehem. And they discover it's still too dangerous to live in Judea because Herod's son is now ruling. So they end up making their home in Nazareth, up in the north, away from Judea, where they're going to be safe. Now, in the Luke account, because remember, Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth in the Luke account. In the Luke account, there's no going off to Egypt because there's a slaughter of innocents or any of that. They stick around to Bethlehem for 40 days after Jesus' birth so that the appropriate purity laws of the Old Testament uh, can be done. Mary was unclean for that period of time. They leave Bethlehem, and since they're already in the in the neighborhood, they take a ride up to Jerusalem, make the appropriate sacrifices at the temple, and then they return to what Luke says, their own town of Nazareth, after they fulfilled all their temple obligations. So, right off the bat, when you actually examine the stories around Jesus' birth, we only have two accounts, and they don't match up 
at all. The only thing they seem to agree on is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and that somehow he ended up in Nazareth to be raised. Now, they both claim this as a fulfillment of prophecy. That's the other thing that these accounts have in common. They both claim that Jesus should be a Nazarene, he should be from Nazareth, and that he should be born in this city of David. He should be born in Bethlehem. It doesn't seem to be that big of a deal how that prophecy is shown to be fulfilled, just that it is. And so they give two very discrepant accounts to try to make that happen. Which reads exactly like what you'd expect if somebody were to retroactively be saying, we need to link him up into Bethlehem, and he lives in Nazareth. How can we do that? And they just come up with two different ways to do it. Exactly. There's no way, if you're actually looking at this as literal as the people in the Barno story were asked, uh, that if you'd actually examine the stories, that you could come up with the idea that this is just plain fact, that the interpretation screams that this is doctored, this is made up. And the other thing that's interesting is that they make them up relevant with the themes in the book that each of them stress separately. Matthew's theme is that Jesus is a Jew, he's the new Moses. Exactly. Where would you want Moses to do? And, you know, everybody knows the story of Pharaoh in Egypt. So instead of having Moses escape the slaughter of the innocents by Pharaoh by going out of Egypt, how about have the reverse happen? Right. Now, Herod is the Pharaoh. Let's have Jesus go to Egypt. The parallel would have been obvious to people at that time that Jesus is like Moses. Of course. He, uh, he, comes, he comes out of Egypt. W- what does he do? The very next scene is his early life. He's baptized. Uh, he's what? What do you do when you're baptized? You pass through water, like Moses. Uh, then he goes in for forty days into the desert to be tempted, the wilderness. It's reliving uh, the Jewish saga in the story of Jesus. Luke has a Gentile audience. He's not at all concerned about portraying that, so he gives you some flat-out facts about how this is done mentions Jerusalem. Jerusalem's very important in Luke. It's it's where prophets go to die. Um, <laughs> Luke's words. And he also stresses the virgin aspect is much more emphasized in Luke. And why why is that? Because the Greek-speaking audience needs parthenogenic births. The, right. uh, the Isis legend is, f- is familiar to people. The you know, all the legends of all these gods coming, Greek gods. And so there's where you have this mistranslation of the Isaiah term of young woman, the prophecy in Isaiah, meaning that in some unrelated story, uh, a young woman will give birth to a child. I think the word is Alma or Alma or something like that. It means just simply young woman, presumably uh, you know, unmarried. But uh, the Greek Septuagint mistranslates that as Parthenos, meaning specifically virgin, didn't have sex. And so you can see whether if somebody is reading the Greek Septuagint, they have to come up with a virginal story, specifically a spontaneous birth. So it's actually based on a mistranslation of Isaiah uh, that she needs to be a virgin. If you have an easy response to this, uh, please do send it in because it seems to me like the virgin birth of Christ seems to be on very, very shaky a foundation. If you have a counter-argument, please send it in. Doubtcast at gmail.com will be just as critical of all the other virgin birth stories of uh, Parthogenesis, of Athena. Oh, certainly. And, uh, yeah, I don't buy that Mithras crap either. Buddha coming from his mother's side. And, yes, uh, yes. We're equal opportunity when it comes to virgin birth stories. Uh, Apollonius of Tyana, another one. He's he's cutting in on a lot of Jesus' territory. Were born uh, in a virgin-like manner. Or was it Julius Caesar? Caesar was, yes. Was. No, Really? I know he was born. No, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. All right. Since this is a Christmas show, maybe we should go further than just debunking the Christmas narrative. Maybe we should look at some of the pagan origins of the holiday. Aren't they all pagan? You can't find any holiday stuff that isn't pagan. Really? So... So the Christmas tree, that's that's a Christian tradition, right? Anglo-Saxon, Northern European, Scandinavian. It's the, darkest, uh, it's the darkest night of the year or the longest night of the year, so they put little lights on their trees and houses and the evergreen trees. Uh, sim- it comes from the Northern European tradition, the Yule log that you would light. The uh, Scandinavians, the Norse, would light Yule logs and try to burn it up and have these night celebrations because it's the beginning of 
of light. So the, Christ, the Christians actually, they all the symbology of Christ is the beginning of hope, and the days start to get longer. That's you know uh, they work it into their tradition, but that comes from a pagan mythology. I knew some fundamentalists who wouldn't celebrate Christmas or put up a tree uh, because they thought it was a Asherah pole. Uh, <laughs> Puritans didn't like Christmas either. If you go back to England and the early colonial times, Christmas Christmas had a shady reputation. They thought it was based. They they acknowledged that it was based on pagan things. They they didn't particularly celebrate it that much because they knew that it was kind of a made up holiday. Okay, but Santa Claus, Saint Nicholas, is a Christian figure, right? He was a bishop in Turkey. He was famous for doing charity for people. I think that there mm-hmm. was rumors that he had bailed people out of debt and things like that. So he was a figure who would come with presents. And so, uh, and he seemed to drift in with these, as if you know the David Sedaris thing with four to eight black men. Six to eight black six men. Six to eight yeah. black men. Oh, uh, and he would uh, ride into town with his assistants and bestow gifts and money upon people. And so they uh, gradually turned him into Sinterklaas, uh, which we call Santa Claus. So it was an amalgamation of St. Nicholas. Okay, so the tree and Santa and all of that kind of secular stuff about Christmas, I buy. But the story of the nativity, a virgin giving birth to a god-man, that never happened before Jesus, right? Oh, Dave, I would like to be able to... Well, let, uh, look at the. Uh, let's just take one god, the uh, Mithras legend. This Mithras was a Persian uh, god who was born in a grotto, which was a cave-like thing. In fact, if you look at the uh, origins of what we call a manger, you look at the little, you know, the thing that your city taxes pay for on the courthouse mm-hmm. lawn. Mm-hmm. The manger didn't look like a bunch of sticks in a shack. It was actually uh, a thing where it was carved sometimes out of a hillside where the animals would stay in the low part and the people would live in a different part. So it's very similar to the Mithras legend of a grotto birth in kind of a cave-like thing. And there's other gods born like that too. But but Mithras came after Jesus, right? I mean, he, uh, was, just, he was just riding Jesus's coattails. Okay. I, why didn't they tell you this? Why should I have to be the one to disabuse you of this? Oh, no. All kinds of gods came uh, uh, this way too. You have that. The whole festival used to be Saturnalia, where they would celebrate this on the, the uh, you know solstice period of time. The Christians just simply wanted to compete with that legend by having. They knew shrewdly that they would have the more converts, uh, more converts if they could have the holiday on a time where there already was a holiday full of feasting and things like that. So they took over Saturnalia. Wow, guys, that was really good, and didn't at all seem scripted. <laughs> I thought Dave was genuinely shattered. <laughs> I, I, I am, but at, at least now I know I don't have to take down my Christmas tree because it's it it's not a Christmas tree. It's a, um, uh, uh, a European uh, pagan occult. Uh, the sun is coming back. Let's put candles on the tree, kind of thing. I saw a cartoon. I think it was in time where these uh, pagans were in Roman times and having their Saturnalia festival. They're like, "Look at these Christians! They've forgotten the true meaning of Saturnalia." (laughs) (laughs) They can still be evil and celebrate Christmas. (laughs) Hooray! All right, it's time for us to uh, open our little Christmas present. Reasonable Doubts is proud to share with you an interview with Paul Kurtz. If you don't know who Paul Kurtz is, Paul Kurtz is really the founder, I guess you could say, of what is the modern secular humanist movement. He was the author of the Humanist Manifesto II. He organized the magazine's Free Inquiry and uh, Skeptical Inquirer, put together PSYCOP, Prometheus Books, you name it. Uh, He's had a role in just about every major component of the modern skeptical movement, not just religion, but pseudoscience. Uh, as well, and humanist ethics. So we are very excited to be able to bring to you an interview with him today. Thank you so much, Paul Kurtz, 
for agreeing to be on our show. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. Delighted to be here, Jeremy, and I believe that we ought to be reasonable in our thought processes, critical thinking, and that the importance of doubt is part of the process of inquiry. So I love the title of your <laughs> podcast. You are the major proponent of secular humanism in the world today, and your legacy will be remembered as that. But there are people such as Tim LaHaye and other writers on the religious right who claim that secular humanism is a evil philosophy, that it leads to rampant immorality, and that it is trying to take possession and control of the entire world. <laughs> How do you address those claims? Well, I think that's a libelous charge, <laughs> and, uh, uh, a scandalous in, uh, in one sense, because uh, I don't. I, I think they've inflated. Uh, that's a kind of conspiracy that they said that secular humanists control the universities and the colleges. Now, I don't have a back room where the president of Harvard and Yale and Princeton <laughs> call me up that would control the ACLU and Americans United, all the liberal <laughs> think tanks or uh, advocacy groups, uh, and that uh, the media as well. <laughs> so that's the charge that they made when they first uh, launched this. And I think they really first began attacking me. When I, when I edited, well, I actually drafted Humanist Manifesto II and issued it in 1973, it made the front page of the New York Times, and I was very pleased to see that. And uh, after that, they began attacking me. It began in the late 70s, actually, and in 80 when Reagan came. And I, so I think that's fictitious uh, effort to demonize people you disagree with and to attribute that to them more powers than we have. I, I wish we had more influence or as much influence as they said, but we do not. And I think that's pure hyperbole. What, in your mind, is the the range and the extent of influence that secular humanism as a philosophy has in society? Well, I do think that secular humanism as a, a philosophical, a scientific, and an ethical outlook does have a great influence. I don't deny that. And indeed, in answer to Michael Novak, who was a distinguished Roman Catholic theologian, I happen to know him quite well, uh, secular humanism is almost equivalent to modernism. He even makes that point. Surely uh, secularism, namely uh, the secularization of values since the Renaissance, the turning from God and the uh, divine city to humans and the secular city, that has been the development since the Renaissance. And the, you might say, in one sense, the whole strain of modern thought the scientific revolution, the quest for a new method in the modern world, uh, the uh, new the enlightenment, uh, the democratic revolutions of our time. So it's uh, the Renaissance was a, a humanistic development and a secular development, and the growth of science is crucial to secular humanism because we take the method of of inquiry is crucial. So, yes, secularism is equivalent to what has emerged in the modern world, uh, but the agenda of secular humanism has not been fully achieved, and it seems to me that we need a new enlightenment today, and that because there's opposition to secular humanism, uh, as, the in, as an intellectual outlook, which has had an enormous impact on, on the contemporary world. Do you think that secular humanism has had a, a disproportionate um, impact given the, the number of uh, people in the country who uh, call themselves atheist and agnostic? It's maybe 10 percent. Sounds like a, a pretty think fair number, I a little think higher than that. The Harris Poll issued in December of uh, 2006, mm -hmm. published in the Financial Times, indicated that there were 14 percent agnostics and 4% atheists, so that's 18% plus uh, even more who didn't want to answer the question or didn't like it was framed. So, so the numbers have been growing in the United States. When I talked about secular humanism, I was talking uh, on a global scale, right. and I think secular humanism Certainly. is growing, Certainly. and Europe is becoming secular. Europe is post-Christian, post-religious. Uh, the Industrial Rev Revolution, the Information Revolution, that's all part of these new 
new uh, institution. So don't identify secular humanism simply with uh, atheism and agnosticism or skepticism. Mm -hmm. It's much broader than that. It's a secularization of our institutions. It's a whole new outlook on life uh, that is very deep in the contemporary world. Yes. And I think that's a, a very important distinction to make. Susan Jacoby in Freethinkers talks about how the Founding Fathers, some of them were Christian, some of them were deists, but they're all secularists. Yes. Well, that's, uh, maybe there are two senses of secularism. Yeah. The first sense, yes, the American Constitution, the First Amendment, Congress should make no law respecting the establishment of religion or the free exercise thereof. That is a remarkable statement that... Mm. Uh, put into the Constitution, uh, by written by Madison, and then uh, and gone through the Constitutional Convention, and then endorsed uh, boldly by Jefferson. So that separation of church and state is the first sense of secularism. And my recent research indicates that there are 94 countries on the planet which have something analogous in their constitutions. So that, in other words, it's opposed to theocracy, mm -hmm. and it says that the state should be neutral about religion and that it will respect freedom to believe or not to believe any denomination, any sect, any outlook. Yes, yeah, so that's the first sense. Right, but but we were the first to have that in our Constitution. We were the yes. first to, to have a Constitution that, that gave rights yeah. to the people. Why are we so far behind? Why are we still yeah, struggling with point. the separation of church and state? Yes and no, we are and we are not. I mean, it's true that Jefferson and Madison and Washington and others uh, were secularists. They were deists, mm -hmm. and uh, they didn't believe in theism. Now, theism claims that God is a person revealed in the Old New Testament or then by latter-day Muslims in the Quran, And so... They, they rejected revealed religion, salvation, and they, so they were, God created the universe and left it alone. Mm -hmm. But in any case, you can be religious and be a secularist. The Seventh-day Adventists are a, a Protestant denomination, and they're strong supporters of secularism because often the, the new sects may be repressed by the older denominations. So, so you will respect all religions or none. You cannot allow religion to have a special place in the legislative political structure of a country. And now what's happened? Well, I think basically we're still a secular country, but the growth of the evangelical movement in the last two to three decades is, for my mind, disturbing because they're questioning separation of church and state, particularly the Bush administration want faith-based charities and as opposed to stem cell research and is uh, trying to turn back the separation principle, which is vital. And yet they enjoy all the benefits of modernism, too. Indeed, they do. <laughs> Even if they're rejecting the process. Uh, you mentioned earlier we need a new enlightenment. Yes. The first enlightenment in Europe, many people were hopeful and optimistic that as the gradual illuminating of the mind through science and reason uh, took place, a lot of these more superstitious religious dogmas would slowly retreat into the background. And at least, at least here in America, um, we have these surprising movements like the evangelicals. Um, if the First Enlightenment was not able to transform society as optimistically as they, they thought they would. In your idea of a new enlightenment, how would that be different? Well, the first, uh, the, the enlightenment did have a profound impact. The free market economies grew out of that. The industrial revolution followed. And there was an enormous expansion of trade and commerce worldwide. And a kind of and a focus on education and the democratic revolutions, the American Revolution and the French Revolution followed from that. Unfortunately, uh, the Europeans became colonists throughout the world, and they were still engaged in the slave trade and uh, interested in profitable business. So the Enlightenment was not carried to the colonies till much later, mm -hmm. when slavery was finally abolished in Britain and elsewhere, and uh, where these ideas of Enlightenment 
began to lead to liberation movements in Latin America and eventually after the Second World War in, in, in Africa. And so the colonial empires disappeared uh, because they were inconsistent. But we need a new enlightenment, not simply uh, concerned with the Industrial Revolution and what happened in Europe, but a global or planetary enlightenment. And the, the agenda, as Jürgen Habermas had said at one time, the German philosopher, the agenda of the enlightenment still has to be fulfilled. But incidentally, there are two points to secularism. I mentioned earlier separation church and state. And the second is the secularization of human values in the area of ethics. And that has also been proceeding very, very rapidly, and the world is becoming secularized. So I'm an optimist uh, that we may be overburdened um, by the emergence of fundamentalism in the United States and also the emergence of Islam and fundamentalist Hinduism and so on, and maybe Orthodox Judaism in certain parts of the world, and or a conservative Catholicism. Nonetheless, long range, we've made enormous progress and uh, with emancipation going on. And I think the new enlightenment really has to extend this worldwide and has to focus on education and the development of new attitudes. Other than the resurgence of religious fundamentalism, what, what do you think are the greatest challenges to this new enlightenment? That uh, the, the problem is uh, to develop a new psychology. And I would say first, to appreciate the methods of science appreciate the tremendous impact of science on technology upon the world. And I fear that public does not understand science, mm -hmm. scientific outlook, and the possible application of science to ethics. Um, in my studies and as a teacher, I've noticed uh, books uh, in, in, in the humanities that I've been reading seem to sometimes frame the history of European colonialism and some of the terrible things that happened there. They associate those values with the values of modernism in general, things like scientific objectivity. Well, I think there's some, maybe there be some truth to the fact that uh, the colonials did, that there was a contradiction between the belief in democracy, liberty, equality, fraternity of the French and the English and uh, of the Spanish in particular, uh, but all, because they developed democracy later, but also of Americans as well. It seems to me that uh, the key point of the New Enlightenment is that we now recognize that everybody on the planet Earth, no matter where they live, has equal dignity and value. It's not just the Frenchman or the Englishman or the American or the Spaniard or the Dutchman or anyone else but everyone has equal dignity and value, and that's a new re realization that ethics is global, ethics is planetary. Is that a is that a scientific discovery, though? How could you how could you infer that just from objective empirical? Data? Very good question, and the, a skeptical question. It's both scientific and moral. It's scientific in the sense that what we've discovered in uh, our studies of the migration of populations, DNA analysis, is that we're all members of the same species. And so out of Africa, tribes migrated to Europe, to Asia, over the Bering Sea, to North and South America, and also to Australia. So we're all the same family, and that's a scientific fact. Incidentally, I say that the first Americans did not come over on the Mayflower, <laughs> and that this notion that we're a Christian nation because we came from England or the Netherlands or what have you, or conquistadors in Spain. There were millions of people here before we got here, and they were pagans. But uh, this sense of uh, the unity of the human species, you know, that's reinforced by American experience. America is the truly universal culture. It's multicultural, but every racial, religious, ethnic, national group is here in America. And that's been the constant process, so that we're kind of microcosm of the larger macrocosm of the, of the planet. 
Yes. So uh, that's so that's scientific. But then the ethical implication: Well, we ought to treat every individual, no matter where he or she lives, with equal dignity. So democracy should be s- developed uh, worldwide. You see, and, and that's, we, we only we don't only treat Americans or Brazilians or Italians or what have you wherever they live in terms of their laws, but we need world system of law, or at least I would say planetary ethics, a recognition that we're interdependent. And that is a moral principle. It's a recommendation. And what's the truth of that? Well, twofold. First, I think that morality has deep roots in who and what we are as as humans, the naked ape is capable of morality. And second, we ought to behave that way because of the consequences of not behaving that way. So it's utilitarian justification mm-hmm. as well as an intuitive justification. So it is actually possible to be moral without <laughs> some deity hanging over our heads telling us what to do. Indeed, uh, Tim LaHaye, to the contrary, <laughs> he, he and his uh, uh, colleagues have said you can't be moral again unless you believe in God. And we hear that not only from the evangelical Protestant fundamentalists, we hear that from the Orthodox Roman Catholics, or we hear that from the Muslims and so on. Well, I I don't think that's true. From the fatherhood of God, you can develop contradictory views. And they clash in the name of God. You can kill each other. All in the name of God, you go to war. And you, and you dehumanize individuals. So I say that from a humanistic perspective, then, this principle of democracy that every person should be treated uh, equally, not in terms of distribution, but in terms of moral consideration. Yes. And, and I think that's the real importance of humanism. Atheism is one thing, but that doesn't, that doesn't inform... Um, much of how I live my life. Just by not believing in the deity is one thing, but humanism is an affirmation. It says it's positive. Yes, that's very well stated. The atheists are critics of the claims of religion. And I I agree. I, I consider myself a non-theist. I don't mm-hmm. believe that there's evidence for the existence of God. So I'm a skeptic about that. And I'm willing to be known as an atheist, but I'm afraid that's too narrow. That's mm-hmm. telling that God is dead, he never existed, there's insufficient reasons to accept belief in God. Mm-hmm. And I surely can't use faith as a justification. <laughs> and I can believe anything. But that's a negative case. And I say, well, if God is dead, if he never existed, what then? And that's a positive case, and that's humanism. And then we have the project of the new enlightenment, the project to improve human life, <coughs> realize its potentialities, and, and, and achieve the, the goodness of living here and now, not in the afterlife, but on, in, our, in our world for ourselves and our fellow human beings. But some people will respond uh, and say, well, this sounds like just another religion. No. <laughs> Please, you want well, to elaborate well, on how that? You're attempting a systematic worldview, I assume, uh, to try to see... The, the, the total of reality, the way the world is and the way we should behave in it uh, and trying to bring about goodness on earth, uh, isn't this just another religious perspective? Well, it depends on what you mean by religion. Religion, in terms of the Latin derivation, means to bind. And it's a creed <laughs> or a set of beliefs that you accept uh, on the basis of faith, but with probably some rational justification also. But the last analysis, based on faith, real, reveal truth to Muhammad or Moses or, or Jesus or Paul or anyone else. And I'm expressing what I call a eupraxophy, good practical wisdom based on the sciences. We have to live. We have to make choices. We do. And so moral principles, they're degrees of rationality. And uh, So I have uh, moral convictions, if you will. But I don't think it's just another religion or just based upon faith or even passion. So this general prescription is we all live on the planet Earth. Let us protect that planet and not destroy it by pollution 
and degradation. First, second, let's consider every member of the human species an independent person entitled to consideration in moral terms. And uh, you say, why? And I say, well, you can make the case. So I would try to make a rational case for uh, consider the planet, this planetary abode that we live on is something that needs to be preserved and protected or we will all suffer. And that seems to me to be pragmatic reason. But then second, uh, a society in which we respect other individuals and provide latitudes of freedom in a democratic world is preferable to one that is not in terms of the, the observed consequences. There are notorious skeptical writers, atheist writers such as Nietzsche, some of the existentialists who insist a world without God, a world without the supernatural, is a lonely world, is a frightening world. You, on the other hand, have a very affirming view towards yeah. life. Where does that come from if there isn't a supernatural realm to count on? Well, if there is a supernatural, I counter life would be boring as all hell. <laughs> and it's just a question of obedience. So I got to spend eternity holding hands and singing hymns <laughs> and adoring a person who insists upon it as a slave. That is obedience and submit. Uh, that, that makes no sense to me. Uh, and it seems a parody. It's anthropocentric reading into the universe, our des desires and fears of others. I love Nietzsche, and I give my I, historically as a professor of philosophy, I, I always give "Thus Spake Zarathustra" to my best students, <laughs> <laughs> and it opens up their eyes. So there's something wonderful about Nietzsche, Nietzsche his attack on the on the naysayers and his attack on the the slave morality, and uh, think for yourself, be independent, be assertive, he says, though much in each I don't accept, but in any case, that part is very, very important. Uh, and concerning the existentialists, I agree that you only have one life to live. Everyone has to confront death, as Heidegger points out, and therefore, the op should we become nihilists, retreat from life in utter despair, wring our hands and moan our fate, that this is a veil of tears? No, I, it's not a veil of tears. Life is what you make of it. It's your choice to lead an authentic life. So you have the power to uh, enter into the world, change it, to affirm your goals and values and achieve them. And the result can be creative exuberance. So I find life wonderful, full of opportunities, full of meaning, pregnant with so many different things, plans and projects that we can fulfill. So it doesn't lead to negativity. It leads to a constructive, positive, a kind of a buoyant, ebullient, exuberant life, creative, joyful happiness. I believe in the Humanist Manifesto 2, you said, and I, I'm probably not quoting this exactly right, but there is no deity to save us. We must save ourselves. No deity will save us. We yeah. must save ourselves. Yes, indeed. True. We, yeah. we must cure disease, get enough food to feed people, keep them warm and sheltered, deal with the natural disasters, try to improve life, use science to create tools, and develop principles of ethical behavior so we can live together in peace and, uh, and uh, with some measure, equanimity. Viewing life in such a way, how do you put a public face on that? And I, I guess what I'm really getting to is many people today, one of their first introductions or their first exposure in a while to a naturalistic way of looking at the world through several of these uh, authors who have been termed the, the new atheists, people like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. Dan Dennett. Dan Dennett, and, uh, right, right. And also and Victor, uh, Steiger. Victor Steiger. They've written these book, five books that right. became bestsellers. They're amazingly popular, and I know a lot of people who read them and, and are definitely struggling with the arguments that are made in there. But they're almost universally portrayed, at least by the media, 
as being very negative, very aggressive. And all yes, well, it's unfortunate because actually in America it's been very difficult to criticize religion. Each of these authors were affiliated or have contributed to write columns for a free inquiry. Mm -hmm. So they're part of our secular humanist center for inquiry uh, movement that we've developed, including one here in the Michigan that I'm visiting now, the Grand, Grand Rapids. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's nev negative. I think we only hear one side. We have thousands, hundreds of thousands of ministers and mullahs, mullahs and rabbis and priests from the pulpits announcing God and the way to salvation, and they disagree about that vehemently. <laughs> It uh, seems to me some criticism is healthy in a democratic, open, free society. It's about time. But I agree. It's not only to criticize, it's to affirm, as you stated. So what do you affirm? Uh, the affirmation is life can be beautiful. Life is intrinsically good. We can live together in peace. We can enjoy life. Uh, we can raise the standard of living. We can travel. We have leisure. We can read. We can write. Uh, we can sing, and um, we can uh, dance in the streets and every and go to gourmet restaurants and everything else as part of a good life. Yes, it, it's always interesting to me that these the four horsemen or five horsemen, as, as they're <laughs> categorized, um, a lot of times are clapped with this label of, of being so negative, especially. Uh, Richard Dawkins in Unweaving the Rainbow, and even in The God Delusion, he does offer a lot of very yes. affirmative ideas, but that doesn't get the press. That's not what they're talking about on South Park and on CNN. He's he's labeled as a, a God-hater. He's out to kill God. Your message, which is much more positive, isn't getting the same kind of press. That's true. <laughs> that's true. And that's unfortunate. And it says something about the press, does it not? And this is not only the conservative media, with, which damns us uh, mm. with vehemence, but even the liberal media has had fear and trepidation. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. I think religion affects everybody. And the claims of religionists have a right to be critically examined, uh, particularly their consequences. And so not to do it would be uh, morally uh, flagrant to violate the, the right to criticize. Why should religion be immune? But I do say, on the other hand, that we have to drop the other shoe, and that is a step forward. Namely, naturalism has its own agenda. Our agenda should not be anti-supernaturalism, mm -hmm but pro-naturalism, namely we live in a natural world, we're a product of evolution. Science has opened a vast cosmic scheme of billions of galaxies. The human species are one, one among many, but this human species has developed culture, has developed social institutions, has developed the sciences, the arts, poetry, all of the aspects of a good life, and we ought to <clears throat> then learn to enjoy that, to contribute to that, and participate in it. So life itself is intrinsically good, and uh, we need to acknowledge that and learn to live in the light of it, the fulfillment of life. I consider it to be the fundamental good. Before we wrap it up for this episode, uh, what are you guys asking for for Christmas? What's on the skeptics' wish list for this holiday? This just came to me yesterday when I opened up my mail, and I had from the Freedom From Religion Foundation and from American Atheist and from the ACLU, which is, of course, not a, a heathen organization, although they do love us. Uh, all three of these groups asking me for money. And what I really want for Christmas is to be able to donate to the, these various organizations. Also, uh, the Center for Inquiry, of course, uh, my personal favorite, um, the Institute for Humanist Studies, which is a, a great group, uh, the Richard Dawkins Foundation. So it's not, it's not a very exciting gift, 
personally, but I think it's important that we give back to people, and these are organizations that are actually doing something positive. So I would love it if all of you listeners out there could give just a little something to one of these organizations, and if you don't want to do it in your name, feel free to do it in my name. Uh, I'm totally okay with that. Using my credit card number, which well, we will now. Yes. Um, luckily, there's no money on, on that. Um, so that, I think, is is the best thing we can do this holiday season is give to a cause that matters, even if it's just dropping off a toy for toys for tots. Oh, that, that's that's really sweet. It's also probably just a tad bit of bullshit. I know you, I know you want something for yourself this holiday season. Come on, man. What's well? I just got my the, new laptop. What oh, more could yeah, I want? That's true. Yeah. I guess you're set. I'm covered in it. Oh, good. We're we're breaking several commandments right here. <laughs> I covered your laptop. Uh, what about you, Luke? What's on the uh, What's on the wish list for what you? What do professors always want? More uh, money? No. Grants? Well, they're never going to get that. Grants? No, no. Books. Prestige? People to worship them and think they're You'll smart? Think, not in this lifetime. I'm not going to get prestige or money. Books. Books. <laughs> What's what, what are some of the books on your list? Well, I already have all the Four Horsemen books, of course, but so I decided to delve into other realms. I asked my family to get me the Christopher Hitchens book on Thomas Paine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've yeah. heard that's great. Yeah, Thomas Paine's a good one. Mm-hmm. And I also recommend, I already have it because I got a free copy, um, Victor Stenger's book, God, the Failed Hypothesis, is um, a great book from Prometheus Press. And in fact, really, anyone, you want to get me a Christmas gift, get on to prometheuspress.com, Yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess. I don't and, know. and feel free to open up the catalog and send me something. I'll take it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I noticed a long time ago, uh, looking at my bookshelf, that Prometheus Books um, seal was almost on all of my books, mm-hmm. um, and and suddenly realized, oh wow, uh, I see a trend. They they put out a lot of good stuff. Has anybody has anybody browsed the Portable Atheist by Christopher Hitchens? I I have not. Does it come with a free glass of bourbon? <laughs> oh. Must be read while chain smoking and saying dirty limericks. Of course, you know uh, I did just think of something else that's that's actually on my Christmas list. Yeah, Philip Pullman's um, Golden Compass. Oh, Golden Compass, and yeah, the sequels definitely. to it. Uh, highly recommend the movie. It's good times, and I mean, there's an armored polar bear fight. What's better than that? So I recommend that, and I'm dying to read the books because I've heard they're even better than the movie. My demon animal is a platypus. <laughs> oh, really? Why is it a platypus? <laughs> Could you think of a more screwed up animal that's like a beaver <laughs> with a duck? And... I guess mine would be a koala, right? Oh, uh, you're like cute, a, lovable, you're loved koala. by the ladies. With a pouch? Sleeps all day. You ever smelled a koala? Does hallucinogenic drugs, you know, <laughs> the eucalyptus. Eucalyptus. That's my power animal, my daemon or demon or whatever they call them. Um, well, I, I already have this, but uh, I think it makes a great addition to any skeptic's Christmas list is Cosmos by Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. They got it out on DVD now, and it's oh, such a beautiful, beautiful set that they put out. So, uh, And how much does that cost? Uh, billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> I was wondering if I would ever get to do a Carl Sagan impression on the show. I didn't want to force it. Why don't we do a show where we're all <laughs> stuff <laughs> of stars? <laughs> we can just, yeah, we'll just do a spinoff where it's the uh, the talking Sagans comedy <laughs> hour. It's always hard to tell what to say when doing a Carl Sagan impression because you don't want to screw it up. <laughs> when I do my Jared Diamond, I just combine Carl Sagan with Kermit the Frog. And it turns into Jared Diamond. <laughs> the early Babylonians in the Fertile Crescent uh, planted the seed-bearing crops of barley and rye. <laughs> Why do all skeptics sound like nerds? <laughs> well, we oh, have totally jumped wow. the shark. <laughs> yeah, that was a geek out moment that will be the end of our podcast Outtakes. yeah mm-hmm. alright well 
Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, enjoy, enjoy your holiday season with your friends and families. Remember the true spirit of the pagan fertility cult that we're celebrating and get laid. Um, Long live Saturn. <laughs> and also, too, remember the Gospel of Doubt, our first episode in January. Please email us doubtcast at gmail.com and we look forward to hearing from you thanks again happy holidays happy holidays happy holidays check my mood ring I'm amazed for episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. That's the long of it, then the short of it. This is the song of it, the report of it. Feel the fun of 